All right, I want to welcome everyone to Grace Community Church this morning. If you have your study guide, you've already gotten a heads up of where we're headed. But over the next several months, Lord willing, we're going to be back in the book of Genesis, and we intend, Lord willing, to finish the book of Genesis this time. So this is like the third or fourth time we've broken in to the book of Genesis. If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 37 this morning. Really quick in the back of the room, if you're able to hear me, can you give me a thumbs up in the back of the room? Thank you very much. All right, let's pray together. Father, we come to you this morning in the name of Jesus. And we intend now, Lord, in obedience to you, God, to give attention to your word. To the scriptures that you breathe out, Lord. And God, our prayer is that you, the God of scripture, that you would reveal yourself to us as we study your word, Lord. God, we ask that you would deliver us during this time of learning things about you, but not drawing near to you, Lord, to worship, to sit at your feet, to be convicted by your word, to love you, the God of Scripture. And so we ask you, Lord, in the name of Jesus, that you would be the living God in our midst. And we thank you, Lord, for your character that you have revealed to us in your word, that you're more ready to meet with us today, Lord, than even we're ready to meet with you, God. You're ready to be, to be found by those who did not seek you, Lord. And that's what we ask for this morning, God, that you would come to us in grace and in mercy, and that you would make yourself known this morning, that you would strengthen the souls of disciples today. Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Genesis chapter 37. Genesis chapter 37. And as we jump back into the book of Genesis this morning, I want to take just a few minutes to get us reoriented uh, in this book, into what God is doing in the book of Genesis, because we're jumping in, you know, over halfway. Uh, there's a lot of stuff that has happened in the book of Genesis already. And so I want to remind us this morning that the book of Genesis is a book of origins. Okay, that's what the word Genesis means, is this book is drawing our attention to the beginnings of lots of different things. Okay. It's a book of origins. It tells us how the creation that we live in, it came to be. It tells us of the origin of creation. Book of Genesis. Book of Genesis also tells us of what happened in this world, what went wrong in this world that we live in. Book of Genesis chronicles for us the entrance of sin into the world as our first parents, Adam and Eve, sinned and rebelled against God. And sin entered into creation and death followed right behind sin. And that sin and death has been passed down to all the children of Adam who have followed him. So it tells us of the origin of sin, the book of Genesis. In fact, there's a way that you could look at the book of Genesis uh, to where it tracks comprehensively every single human being that follows Adam and Eve dies. And you can see this in some of the genealogies. And they lived and they died. And they lived and they died. And in fact, the last line in the book of Genesis, uh, what, what starts in this beautiful garden, what starts with the creation of this perfect world, this book ends with a dead body in a coffin in the land of Egypt. And so that's one of the ways that you could think about what is Genesis doing from creation to coffin. It's tracking the origin of sin, the entrance of sin and death into the created world. But more than anything, the book of Genesis is tracking salvation. That salvation, the origin of salvation, the beginnings of what God began to do to set things right in this world is revealed to us in the book of Genesis. As soon as Genesis chapter 3. 
I mean, we're talking about in the midst of God judging Adam and Eve for their sin, we have the very first promise of the gospel that's given to us in Genesis 3.15. And that's been referred to many times over as the proto-evangel, the first gospel in the word of God. So it's the origin of salvation, the book of Genesis. Okay? And this salvation comes to us in Genesis in the form of promises. Okay? And that Genesis 3.15 happens to be the first one. But by the time we get to Genesis 12, we find out that these salvation promises in the book of Genesis have zoned in on one man and his family, the family of Abraham. And we're told not only that one will arise from Eve... A seed from Eve who will crush the head of Satan himself. We're told that one will arise from Abraham that will bring blessing to all the nations of the earth. So the book of Genesis is tracking for us these salvation promises that God has made to mankind through the chosen family of Abraham. And there's something really important for us to understand and learn as we give attention to the study of this book. There's some literary features in the book of Genesis that tip us off to the purpose of why God gave us this book. And so the way that these promises of salvation are tracked from one generation to the next is through the use of what is referred to as the Toledoth formula. In the book of Genesis, that word Toledoth is a Hebrew word that's translated in our English Bibles with this phrase. These are the generations of. And that phrase shows up 10 different times in the book of Genesis. It marks 10 different sections in the book of Genesis. And almost every single time that phrase is followed by genealogy in the book of Genesis. And what, what this formula, what this structure is doing is it's tracking these promises of salvation from one generation to the next. Abraham dies in the book of Genesis, but the promises of salvation don't die in the book of Genesis. It begins to trace a new chapter of God's grace, of God's promises of salvation to a new generation. This morning we're going to begin and give attention to the last and final Toledoth section in the book of Genesis. And so as, as we seek to get reoriented and what God is doing in this book, I want us to ask and answer again this question. Why all the attention in the book of Genesis to generations and genealogies? I mean, why in the world? This is the kind of stuff that we tend not to care too much about, right? In our daily times with God, when we get to these certain sections of Scripture, our great temptation is to read you know, rapidly through this part to get to stuff that does what? That means more to us. And so why in the world? We know that the Holy Spirit, He's not wasting His breath. The writers of Scripture are not wasting ink. So why all these all this attention given to generations and genealogies in the book of Genesis. And the thing I want to remind us of this morning is that this formula, these are the generations of, this is the chosen instrument of the Holy Spirit. This is his chosen literary device to track these promises from one generation to the next. And more than anything else, what we see happening as we move through these generations and these genealogies is we see that the chosen lineage is being tracked in the word of God. That promise seed, the, the, the family line of this promised one is being tracked through this careful attention given in God's word to these genealogies. And once we see it in this way, these things become beautiful to us that our God, the living God, works in a real space-time world, working all things according to the counsel of His will to bring about the arrival and the coming of the promised one, the seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. And this is something very interesting about these genealogies. Okay, That there's only two books in the entire Old Testament 
where these genealogies play this prominent feature. In the book of Genesis is one. There's genealogies everywhere in the book of Genesis. But it may surprise you that the other book that gives um, a lot of attention to genealogies in the Old Testament is the book of Chronicles. And that's very interesting for a couple of different reasons. Now, to help you to understand our English Bible, First and Second Chronicles, uh, the Hebrew Scriptures just have one book. We split it into two just for uh, sake of space. But the Hebrew Scriptures have the book of Chronicles. And the interesting thing about the connection between Genesis and Chronicles is that the Hebrew order of the Scriptures is different than our current order in the Old Testament. And we know this because Jesus refers to the Bible that he read in the days of his flesh. He refers to it as the law, the prophets, and the writings. Three separate sections of the Old Testament as Jesus knew it and as Jesus read it. And the interesting thing about this is the very first book in that Old Testament canon, the Hebrew canon, is the book of Genesis. And the very last book in that Hebrew Old Testament canon is the book of Chronicles. Genesis and Chronicles. Eat up with genealogies. Very beginning, very end of the Hebrew Scriptures are drawing our attention to this chosen seed, the family lineage of the Lord Jesus Christ. And once we understand that and things like it, Correctly, then we understand the Old Testament was never meant to be understood apart from the New Testament. It's a story that doesn't end. It's a story without a conclusion. It gives all this attention. It starts with tracing the seed. It ends with tracing the seed. But the problem is the seed still has not arrived by the time the Old Testament canon closes. That means the Old Old Testament is an incomplete book. It anticipates something further that God would do. Where is this promised seed? Where is this promised offspring of the woman, offspring of Abraham that will bless all the nations? Where is this promised offspring of Judah that will rule all the nations with a scepter in his hand? Those are the promises of Genesis 3, Genesis 12, and Genesis 49. And we need to understand these things as we give attention to the book of Genesis. It's pointing us forward to the arrival of this promised one. And we see this fulfillment of this Toledoth formula on the very first page, on the very first line of our New Testament. Matthew 1 verse 1 says this, the book of the genealogy of of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now think about how glorious that is, that our God draws attention to this family line in the very first book of the Old Testament. He draws our attention back to this chosen line in the very last book of the Old Testament. And like a trumpet blast, the very first thing he says to us in the New Testament, promised seed is here. Jesus Christ is the son of David. He's the son of Abraham. And what that means is that we were never intended to read the book of Genesis in isolation from its fulfillment. We're supposed to read the book of Genesis anticipating its fulfillment and the arrival of our Lord Jesus Christ. And what that means for us as we jump back in and we begin to work through this final section in the book of Genesis is that our studying of Genesis, our reading of Genesis, my preaching of Genesis ought to, ought to be like it were about Jesus Christ. Because it is about Jesus Christ. And we ought to hate Christless approaches to the Word of God. We ought to despise um, uh, attention given to the Word of God that ignores the main theme in the Word of God, Jesus Christ, the revelation of who Christ is and what Jesus has done. In John 5, verse 39, Jesus says this. He says it so plain. He says, the Scriptures bear witness about me. The Scriptures bear witness about 
about me. And so as we go back into this book, the very first book in the Old Testament, the book of origins, our strategy remains unchanged as a local church. That as we dig into God's word every single week, our highest aim, we're followers of Jesus Christ. We are the body of Jesus Christ. We're the family that belongs to Jesus Christ. And that means our highest aim every single week is we want to see our Savior. We want to behold the glory of Jesus. We want to be reminded of who Jesus is. We want to be reminded about what Jesus has done. We want to be trained in the school of Jesus Christ. And so we want to behold Christ as we give attention to to any part of his word. And that's something that you can be praying for every single week as you come to Grace Community Church. And we sing this song often. Jake leads us in this song. Show us Christ. Show us Christ. And that's our heartbeat as we jump back into the book of Genesis. That this book is about Jesus. And we want to behold the glory of Jesus Christ in all of scripture. All right, let's dig into our text together this morning. Genesis 37, and we're going to read the first 11 verses together. Genesis 37, first 11 verses. This is the Word of God. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations. That's that Toledoth formula. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all their brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Verse 5. Now Joseph had a dream And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. And he said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field. And behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Are you indeed to rule over us? And so they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. And then he dreamed another dream and he told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him. And he said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. This is the word of God to Grace Community Church this morning. Now our text starts in verse 1 with Jacob living in the promised land. He's living in the land of Canaan. And I just want to remind us with that little phrase that this chosen family is a family that trusts in God. They put their faith in the promises of God. And that's exactly what the writer of Hebrews reminds us of. That the act of living in the promised land was an act of faith for these patriarchs. Listen to Hebrews 11 verse 9. The writer says, by faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. 
That means that the patriarchs, this family, they believed God. They weren't trusting God for merely worldly wealth. They were trusting the promises of God. This is something else that the writer of Hebrews makes explicitly clear. They're not just trusting God for material worldly things. These promises were eschatological. That's the way the patriarchs understood them. That they were for the very end of time. Listen to what Hebrews 11 goes on to say about these patriarchs. Verse 13. They died in faith not having received the things that were promised. That was their life. They dwelt in the promised land, but they didn't receive the things that were promised. Listen close. Verse 10, they were looking forward. They were looking forward to the city whose designer and builder is God. And so in verse 1, as we see Jacob dwelling in the land of Canaan, he's waiting for his heavenly inheritance that's going to come to him after he dies. And another way to say this is that these Old Testament saints, these patriarchs, they have resurrection faith in the living God. They have resurrection faith. They're not living for the here and now. And we see a really clear reference to this at the end of the book of Genesis where Joseph makes reference to his bones after his dead body decays into nothing but bones. Joseph says, take my bones back to the promised land. That's an act of faith that he was trusting God for a resurrection from the dead, for a heavenly city for a heavenly inheritance. And this is what makes the prosperity gospel so wicked and so wrong. That even in the Old Testament, where material prosperity played a much heavier role than the New Testament, even in the Old Testament, they weren't living for worldly riches. They were trusting God for the heavenly inheritance. They had a resurrection faith in the one true God. And I just ask you that question this morning. After you're dead and gone, okay? If what you consider to be good and what God can do for you as good is only wrapped up in the here and now, what about after you're dead and gone? After your body is put six feet under the ground and there's nothing on top of you but dirt and you're decaying into nothing but bones, what are you trusting God to do then? And this is the nature of the God of Scripture. He doesn't provide this little bitty salvation, but comprehensive salvation from sin. Resurrection faith in the living God. This is the chosen family. We come to this Toledo section, this formula in verse 2. These are the generations of Jacob. Okay, And the, and the rest of Genesis is going to be unpacking that heading. And what we're going to see is that the main character that emerges in these final chapters of Genesis, Jacob has a bunch of sons, but Joseph is going to emerge as the main character in this last section of Genesis. It's not completely about Joseph, but it's mainly about Joseph. And we're going to see the reason why as we close our time. There's something intentional that God would have us to learn about Joseph's life. We're going to zone in on our text this morning under three headings. I want you to see three things that this text shows us about Joseph. One, it shows us that he was loved by his father. Number two, it shows us that he was hated by his brothers. And then finally, we're going to see that this text shows us that he was chosen by God. Loved by his father, hated by his brothers, and chosen by God. And so let's pick it up in verse 2. We're introduced in verse 2 to this young boy, 17 years old, named Joseph. He's shepherding his father's flock with his brothers. And then the narrator of Genesis, who happens to be Moses... Several generations later, makes this explicit statement. It's a shocking statement in verse 3. Israel loved Joseph more than any of his sons. Israel loved Joseph more than any of his sons. 
Now, I don't want us to get dull to phrases like that in Holy Scripture. I want to remind us this morning about the evil of parental partiality. Okay? And this is a minor point in this text, but I do want to take some time to camp here for just a moment. I want you to picture yourself in a line of your siblings... And I want you to try to begin to process the emotional turmoil of your daddy saying, I love your brother more than I love you. Okay? This is parental favoritism. And this is insane when you think about who's committing this sin. Jacob is committing this sin. Also called Israel is committing this sin. And so why that's insane is because... You know, he he very quickly forgot that this is the same thing that happened to him. This is the same thing that his daddy did to him. This is the same thing that Isaac did when he had those two boys, Esau and Jacob. And he loved Esau more than he loved Jacob. Jacob knows what it's like to be on the short end of the stick of his daddy's affections. But this crazy thing we see in this passage is that the one who was sinned against by his father is actually repeating that same sin in this story. And in both generations, this parental favoritism unleashes chaos between these siblings. It did it in the case of Jacob and Esau, and it'll do it again in the case of Joseph and his brothers. And so I want to mention this really quickly, okay? To the parents in the room, I want to make sure we're all crystal clear that parental favoritism is a sin in the Word of God. It is a sin to love one of your children more than the others of your children, or a couple of your children more than the other of your children. Listen to James chapter 2, verse 1. It says this, Show no partiality. As you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. This is wrong, okay? This is wrong. Now, we need to be at least a little bit educated that our tendency is probably not going to be to line our children up in a line, you know? Say all ten of them are in a line and you say, yep, I love that one more than every other one, okay? You need to be concerned that this partiality is going to come out in parenting in more subtle ways. And so I want us to hate this and turn from this in our parenting. It is wrong as a parent for you to show partiality to your children in your attention that you give to them or in your affections that you give to them. Partiality is shown in Way more subtle ways. And you need to learn this as a parent on the front end. Because if we don't repent of this in our parenting, now what we can expect to be unleashed in our families is exactly what we see in the book of Genesis is chaos between siblings. Strife in the family. God shows no partiality. We are called to, to mirror, to imitate God the Father to our children. So this is parental partiality. This is one of those repetitive sins that we see reoccurring in this chosen family. We want to learn from it and turn from it. Okay, This is a minor point in this passage. Israel showed partiality to Joseph. Okay, He loved him more than his other brothers. And one of the ways that he displayed this partiality was, was by making him this special garment. Our text tells us that it was a many-colored robe, okay? this special garment. And really, uh, the Hebrew is unclear exactly what's going on with this phrase. It could be a many-colored robe. So maybe Joseph is wearing a tie-dyed shirt, you know, walking around, around the desert. Maybe so. It could mean this ornamental robe that has jewels Precious stones over this coat. Or it could mean that this garment was unusually long. That it covered all the way down to his wrist and his ankles. There's some ambiguity here. But what is clear is that this garment was meant to show Joseph's favored status uh, above all his other brothers. And this was Israel's gift 
to Joseph. And there's, and there's one other detail that I think would be helpful for us of why is Joseph being singled out from his brothers. And this is interesting because another place where this same Hebrew construction is used about this many-colored robe is in 2 Samuel 13, verses 18 and 19. Super interesting because this same uh, phrase describes the garments that King David's children wore. Okay? They describe royal garments in 2 Samuel 13. And so most likely what's happening in Israel singling out Joseph is he is singling him out as the heir of the family. That he's the one who's going to rule over the family. He's the one who's going to wear the royal garments per se. Or in the language that we've already talked about so much in the book of Genesis. That the rights of the firstborn are going to go to Joseph. Little Joseph instead of his older brothers. And as we continue to read the book of Genesis, this is exactly what happens. The inheritance, the right of the firstborn, indeed goes to Joseph towards the end of Genesis. And this is confirmed by this verse in 1 Chronicles chapter 5. Listen to verse 2. It says, Though Judah became strong among his brothers, and a chief came from him, yet the birthright belonged to to Joseph. So Joseph is the heir. He's his father's heir. He's, he's, the, he's the younger one, but he's been signaled out by his father to, to take the right of the firstborn instead of his older siblings. Now, needless to say, okay, this fuels the hatred that their brothers have for Joseph. And if what we've read so far wasn't enough, we read this in verse 2. And this surely didn't help things. Verse 2 tells us that Joseph brings a bad report against his brothers to his father. He delivers a bad report. Now, sometimes Joseph gets a bad rap for this right here. Okay, That he's tattling on his brothers. But I think the way that we should read this text is that all Joseph is doing is exposing their sin. He's bringing a bad report, an evil report, against the brothers because they're doing wicked things against God. Their daddy serves the Lord. When they get away from their daddy, there's something. We're not told exactly what it was, but there's something in their life that would be offensive to God. And Joseph is doing exactly what Ephesians 5.11 tells us to do. To have no fellowship with unfruitful works of darkness, but rather to expose them. And so Joseph begins to expose the sin of his brother. And this is an offensive thing, right? If you're a grown man and your sin is being exposed, you don't like it. But if it's being exposed by your little teenage brother, you doubly hate it, right? And that's exactly what's happening to Joseph. He's being hated as a truth teller. Okay? And this is something that we can trace all throughout the Word of God. That the flesh, our unregenerate nature, hates to have our sin drug into the light. This is the same reason that Jesus was hated. Listen to this in John chapter 7, verse 7. Jesus says to us, He says, The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify against it that its works are evil. So that's a real simple answer. Why did the world hate Jesus? Because Jesus came and he said, y'all are evil. Y'all do evil. Y'all are evildoers. He was the light that pierced the world of darkness. Sin does not like to be exposed. This is like the light uh, banishing, exposing the darkness. And we're told that this just fueled the brother's hatred even more. And we're told in verse 4... That this hatred was so deep in their life that it became slavery. Okay, Notice that it says in verse 4 that they got to such a place in their hatred that the text says they were not able to do something. They, didn't, they no longer had the ability, according to verse 4, to speak peaceably to Joseph. Okay, This is the language of 
dominion. They were under the dominion and the slavery of sin. And brothers and sisters, I want us to be warned just with that phrase in verse 4 about the sin of jealousy. This is a sin, uh, like many others, that, that takes you further than you ever dreamed that you would go. Okay? Because what we're going to find out by the end of this chapter is they're going to they're plan to kill their little brother. And then they change the plan to the last minute to make some money by selling him into slavery. And just think about this. Which one of these brothers grew up thinking, when I grow up, I want to kill my little brother. When I grow up, I want to sell him into slavery in Egypt. You see, it doesn't work like that. They gave way to this hatred, this sinful hatred, this jealousy, and it took them further than they ever wanted to go. Listen to James chapter 3, verse 16. It says, where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. It's it's like a gateway drug. It's a sin that leads to other sin. It leads to disorder. It leads to every vile practice. Nothing is off the table when you're overrun by jealousy, even murder, even selling your little teenage brother and trafficking him into a foreign nation. The sin of jealousy. So we have Joseph is loved by his father. Joseph, Joseph is hated by his brothers. And then the majority of our passage this morning zones in, beginning in verse 5, on these two dreams that Joseph has. And we're going to spend a few minutes unpacking these dreams that God gave to Joseph. Now, something interesting in the whole Joseph narrative So beginning in chapter 37 to the end of the book, there are three different sets of dreams in the Joseph narrative. And they always come in pairs. First set comes in a pair. Second set comes in a pair. And the third set comes in a pair. And this is intentional by God. And we find out later that when when these dreams come in pairs, it's not because they have two different meanings. Okay, God is showing... Something different. So later when Joseph is explaining his ability to interpret dreams to Pharaoh, he says this in Genesis 41 verse 25. Your dreams are not two dreams, they're one. So even though they are two dreams, they're pointing to the same thing. And so in our text, we have that first dream beginning in verse 5. The second dream beginning in verse 9. First dream comes to us with this agricultural imagery, these sheaves, these gathering and binding of sheaves. Okay, This is harvest imagery, imagery, farming imagery. And then that second dream comes to us with imagery from astronomy. The sun, the moon, the stars are bowing to Joseph. And even though there's two sets of imagery, the fundamental meaning of both of these dreams is exactly the same. Okay, They point to the exact same thing. They're not two, they're one. And the simple meaning of these dreams, and every single member in Joseph's family understood it, is that Joseph would be exalted to a position of authority over his family. A position of great authority to where his family would come and bow down before him. That's the meaning of these dreams. It comes twice in the form of repetition to highlight the certainty, the fixed nature of these dreams. This is what Joseph says later in Genesis 41, verse 32. He says, the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God. And so what we're being told through these dreams in the back, back half of our text this morning is that Joseph will certainly, he will absolutely, positively be exalted to a position of authority above his family. God is revealing through these dreams what he is about to do in Joseph's life. And that's who our God is. He's a God who declares the end from the beginning. 
This is who he is. He's, he's able to reveal the future. And there's a, there, there's a prophetic nature that runs all throughout the word of God. That our God shows his ability over and over again to declare the end from the beginning. And so through these dreams and that simple theme of Joseph being exalted above his family, we are introduced to the theme that the rest of the book of Genesis chases out. Of how God will bring about his plan in Joseph's life. And something interesting to note is that each, uh, each pair of dreams, each couplet, triggers a new phase in the Joseph narrative. A new phase in Joseph's life. And so this first pair of dreams, it triggers his betrayal by his brothers and Joseph's descent into his suffering in Egypt. And then we come to that second pair of dreams. And that second pair of dreams triggers his deliverance from prison. You remember this, where he interprets the dreams of the butler and the baker. And as these dreams are interpreted, he's delivered out of prison. And then that final pair, that third pair of dreams triggers, as he interprets the dreams of Pharaoh himself, it triggers his exaltation in Egypt that, that Pharaoh makes Joseph Second in command in this world empire. And so there's much under the surface here. Okay? There's much under the surface here. These dreams in, in verse 5 and verse 9, they're the reason, they're, they're the straw that broke the camel's back in their brother's hatred. This is the tipping point that the brothers decide, okay, we're going to kill you. No, we're going to sell you off into Slavery, And so these, this dream becomes the means of his betrayal by his brothers. They hated him. Will you reign over us? Are you to indeed rule over us? That's what they say in verse 8. And the irony here, and this is woven throughout Joseph's whole life, is the dreams trigger his betrayal, but the betrayal triggers the actual fulfillment of, of the dreams. And this is what God shows Himself as able to do all throughout Joseph's life. And we come to that phrase in Genesis 50 where Joseph says, What you meant for evil, God meant it for good. And so God is flexing His might, the might of His providence, His ability to work all things according to the counsel of His will throughout Joseph's entire life. The dreams trigger the betrayal, but the, but the betrayal actually triggers the fulfillment of the dreams. And so these dreams leave us with a certain expectation that Joseph is going to be exalted because God says so. Because God reveals that it's his will to exalt Joseph above his family. And we're going to see this theme repeated over and over again. Now, many modern commentators uh, are pretty rough on Joseph in uh, Genesis chapter 37. And Joseph is often, uh, in, in more modern approaches, uh, portrayed in Genesis 37 uh, like this. Uh, a pampered daddy's boy. Okay? Um, a, a spoiled brat. A... Uh, um, a prideful, arrogant tattletale. Okay? And, and I want to give us another way to read Genesis 37. I want to point out that the text never actually tells us that Joseph sins in the way that he deals with his brother. His daddy sins and his brothers definitely sin. But the sin of Joseph is much less clear in Genesis 37. And so I want to make us aware a much longer uh, a history of interpreting Genesis 37 in the Christian church has been to view Joseph his entire life as a type of Jesus Christ. A picture of Jesus Christ. A foreshadowing of Jesus Christ. And, and in Genesis 37, what is being portrayed to us is Joseph is the one that God has chosen that God will Exalt. And so the ways, 
And I want to give us the few, uh, several of these through his whole life to think about the ways that Joseph prefigures and foreshadows Christ is seen in the ways that they're like each other. The ways that Joseph is like Christ. This is how typology works. Okay, Connections of like Jesus, but Jesus is greater. And as I read just several of these off, I want to remind you that this stuff is amazing. Okay, We're talking about this is the way that God ordained to work out salvation history where there would be this constant echo, this constant foreshadowing to what God would do with His Son, Jesus. And we're talking about Christ-centered echoes in the first book of the Bible. Thousands of years ago, the living God bending history, making it work out just so, the language of providence, just so, these details to point straight towards the finished work of Jesus Christ. And so I want us to worship Christ together as we consider these parallels this morning of how Joseph is like Christ. And these are the types of themes over the next several months that you're going to see reappearing as we make our way through this Joseph story. This is, this is the kind of stuff that we want to learn well because we want to worship God. We want to behold the glory of Jesus Christ. And so we'll start just in a broadest sense of who is Joseph in the book of Genesis. And I would summarize that as Joseph is this. He's a righteous, suffering deliverer. That's how he's presented to us in the book of Genesis. A righteous, suffering deliverer. He is presented to us as a righteous man in comparison to all of his brothers. He is presented to us as a man who suffers not for something that he did wrong. He suffered because he was righteous. He's a righteous, suffering deliverer. And we're going to see this story play out that God had a plan to exalt him in order for Joseph to deliver his people. And I just want to ask you this this morning. Those that love Jesus Christ, does that sound familiar to you? A righteous, suffering deliverer. Does that sound like a theme? Echoes that you can hear all throughout the Word of God that find their fulfillment, their glorious fulfillment in the righteous one, the one who suffered, the one who delivered us eternally. This is who Joseph is, the righteous, suffering deliverer, the one who was loved by his father and chosen by God. The one who was loved by his father and chosen by God. Listen to some of these details. Joseph was betrayed by his kinsmen. He was sold for pieces of silver. And he was delivered over into the hands of the Gentiles. I ask you again, that ring a bell to you? Does that ring a bell to you? You see how God is bringing about this story. He was raised to a position of great power after a season of great suffering. This is Joseph. His rule in Egypt brought deliverance to the nations, deliverance from famine. He was the initial fulfillment to all the nations of the earth being blessed in the offspring of Abraham. This is Joseph. He's presented to us in the book of Genesis as the Savior King. The one who is given tremendous authority and power and yet Joseph uses this authority and this power to save and deliver His people. And then I want this to be personal to you this morning. Joseph is presented to us, the Savior King, as this man with tremendous authority. And yet, from that place and that position of tremendous authority, he could crush every enemy that he's ever had, but he shows grace and forgiveness to those who have sinned against Him. This ought to remind us of the glorious Gospel of Jesus Christ. That this book is drawing our attention, our gaze into a true and better. It, it anticipates a fuller fulfillment. One like Joseph, one greater than Joseph 
to come. The true Savior King. And this is Jesus. This is Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And this is how typology works. It's, it's similarities, but, it, but it's more than similarities. Jesus is like, but he's greater than. And so I want us to worship him. He's like, but he's greater than. And so consider these. Joseph was a righteous man. In the same way that you would look at a godly man in this room, you say, yeah, this is a righteous man. He's relatively righteous. When you compare it to his brothers, he's relatively righteous. But Jesus has never sinned. He has been tempted in every single way that we are, but he's never blinked at temptation. He has never sinned. He has never entertained the slightest Moment of disobedience to his father. He's lived in perfect submission to his father always. He's the righteous one. Jesus is the righteous one. And Joseph suffered for no reason of his own. And he suffered much. But no one ever suffered like Jesus Christ. No one ever suffered like Jesus. You know, I certainly understand what we mean when we say things like, you know, why do, good, why do bad things happen to good people? And, there, and, there's, a, and there's a sense which, in a horizontal you know, way, maybe, maybe we can understand that. But when Jesus comes, what we need to understand is this is the only time that that has literally ever happened and will ever happen in all of eternity that something bad happened to a good man. He never sinned. And yet no one suffered like Jesus for no fault of his own. We're told that the very bottom to which Jesus suffered, he was the eternal son of God who lays aside those regal garments, those royal garments, takes the form of a poor slave and dies being crucified on the cross for sinners. We're told that the very bottom of Jesus' suffering is this cup that he drinks from his Father. The Scripture calls it a cup of wrath. So no doubt Joseph suffered much when he sat away rotting in that Egyptian prison cell. But Jesus more so. Jesus drank the cup of wrath. He was like Jonah when Jonah was thrown into the sea. Jesus was cast into the darkness. That's exactly what came upon Christ. At the moment of his crucifixion, he was cast into darkness, forsaken by God, consumed under the wrath of God. No one ever suffered like Christ. He's the true and better The righteous sufferer, the Lord Jesus Christ. But he's also the deliverer. Consider this, Joseph, for just a little bitty period of time, just a vapor in the scope of eternity, he was raised to a position of prominence and power in Egypt. And later in the, in the Joseph story, we'll learn that everywhere he went in Egypt, he rode a chariot and these words were pronounced before him. Bow the knee. Bow the knee to this man. By the time the book of Genesis ends, this man is in a coffin, swallowed up by the curse of sin and death. And this is Joseph, the deliverer. For a little bitty period of time, He is elevated and given dominion. But contrast him to Jesus. Jesus tells us in Matthew 28, let these words hit you freshly this morning. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Jesus says. There's not one ounce of authority in this world or in the world above it, that has not been handed over into the hands of Jesus Christ. And not temporarily. This is for all of eternity. He is the true son of David that will sit on David's throne. Listen to it forever. Forever. He will never be limited 
are stopped by death. He has all authority in heaven and on earth, and he has it forever. So think about this. For a brief period of time, this picture was foreshadowing the true and better. Joseph heard, bow the knee. And then after he died, nobody bows the knee to Joseph anymore. But think about Jesus. We're told in Philippians chapter 2 that Jesus has been given the name that is above every name. That throughout all of eternity, 10 million years and 10 million years past that, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Joseph was raised to power and he delivered his people. Actually, he just prolonged their life for a, for a little bit. They were going to die of famine and he made sure they ate breakfast for a few more years in this world. And then those whom he delivered succumbed to sin and death. The curse of sin and death swallowed them up. But the deliverance that Jesus provides is better it's better. And so, brothers and sisters, don't be surprised at the return of Christ if you hear something like this. Bow the knee to King Jesus. Bow the knee. And those who put their trust in Christ, those who are eagerly waiting for Him, we're told in Scripture that He's going to provide for them a deliverance unto eternity. And so Joseph made sure his people had breakfast for a few more years in this world. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that Jesus eats death for breakfast. He swallows up death in victory. He ate it. He swallowed it. He delivers His people, not for a little while, prolonging their life. He gives them eternal salvation from sin. He is the true and better Savior King. The righteous Suffering deliverer. And so this story reminds us, it shows us that Joseph is the one that God chose to rule over his brothers. He's the God-appointed redeemer. And yet verse 8 tells us that his brothers rejected him. They hated the chosen one. I'll read these words again in verse 8. This is their response to revelatory dreams from God to set Joseph on the throne. Are you indeed to reign over us? God chooses whom He chooses. The sinful nature responds. Are you indeed to reign over us? You ought to hear an echo there. To Exodus chapter 2. This is the same thing that Israel did to Moses. We hear these words. Moses shows up as the God-appointed Redeemer. Israel says, who made you a prince and a judge over us? There's a long pattern of rebellious unbelief, of rejecting the God-appointed Deliverer. There's an entire sermon on this in Scripture, in Acts chapter 7, of an indictment on Israel for always rejecting the Deliverer. And Jesus aims those exact words to all who reject Him as King. Listen to this phrase in Luke chapter 19, verse 14. Those who reject Christ had these words on their lips. We do not want this man to reign over us. We do not want this man to reign over us. And so this is the pattern in Scripture. God sets His deliverers up. And rebellious humanity says, He will not rule over me. And that's the pattern I want to warn us about this morning. These brothers rejected this chosen ruler in Joseph. And I want to remind us of just how dangerous it is for us to do that same thing with the true and better Joseph, the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about this. This is a sobering moment towards the end of the book of Genesis. 
that these same brothers who reject chosen Joseph in his lowly, shepherdly, 17-year-old state are the same brothers that stand before Joseph in his exalted state with all the authority of the Egyptian army behind him. This is the same Joseph that they stand guilty before at the end of the story. And this is what I want to remind us of. That these parallels put us in a similar place that we need to be warned about rejecting God's deliverer. Rejecting the one whom God has appointed to rule. The book of Acts tells us that God has made Jesus both Lord and Christ. He's the Redeemer. He is the Ruler. And the Scriptures remind us that every single one of us have that, that we have sinned against this Jesus. And the Scriptures remind us, and here's the terrifying, sobering reality, that we will stand before this Jesus whom we have sinned against, not in His shepherdly, slavely, lowly state. We will stand before this Jesus in His exalted state, with His eyes like a flame of fire, with His voice like the sound of many waters. We will stand before God's King in all of His majesty, in all of His authority, as though we have personally sinned against Him. We will give an account of our lives to God's King. And Genesis 37 is exhorting us to submit to this King. That this King is the King of grace. He's the Savior King. That He's willing to forgive, wipe clean those who have sinned against Him. And yet this long pattern of human rebellion hates the One whom God has sent to save us. And so I want to close with a meditation on Psalm 2 together. Psalm 2 shows us this picture from several different angles. The first thing that we're going to see is this rebellion that human beings have and will always have towards God's ruler, God's deliverer. Psalm 2, verses 1 through 3. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Translation, this man will not reign over us. And I want to remind every person in the room of how suicidal this rebellion is against God's ruler. Let's keep reading. Verse 4, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision, and He will speak to them in His wrath and terrify them in His fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill, and I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Rejecting God's ruler is suicidal. No human being has the snowball's chance in hell to use the metaphor. Not a chance to overpower the mighty one. He laughs, is what the Word of God says. He laughs at your refusal to submit to Him. And He tells you that He's going to crack your knees with a rod of iron if you don't bow to His ruler. He will speak to you in His wrath. In His wrath. Suicidal to reject the one whom God has appointed to rule. God's deliverer. And finally, Psalm 2, it calls us to respond rightly to God's King. And we'll close with this this morning. 
Psalm 2, verse 10. Now therefore, O kings, be wise and be warned. O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath is kindled quickly. Blessed are all those who take refuge in Him. And that's my closing plea to you this morning. Be wise and be warned. Be wise and be warned. Do not reject the one whom God has appointed to rule you. Do not hate the one that God has sent to save you. Be wise and be warned. Kiss the Son. Kiss the Son. When we hear bow the knee to Jesus... Everyone who runs to Him for refuge, we love it. Rule over us, King Jesus. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Let's pray. Lord, we love You. God, we thank You for Your Word. God, we thank You for Your glorious Gospel. That You are the Redeemer. God, none of us can lay claim, Lord, to Your grace. Your grace is free. It's sovereign. Lord, thank You for what You've done for us in Christ. God, we pray that You would cause Your Word to bear fruit in our life. God, we ask that You would help us, Lord, even now, to behold the glory of Your Son, Jesus. In His name we pray. Amen.